This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 287. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Mr. What do I call you? Boss Man. We'll call you the Boss Man. Jacob, he doesn't really like being called Boss Man. Which is probably why you did it. <laughs> what's up? Um, shot show next week. That seems to be what's up. Yeah. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Sort of. Feels that way. Like all consuming. Uh, I I spent a little bit of time this morning trying to get camera gear all assembled. And uh, yeah, we're going to try to run with two. Well, I don't know if we could quite call it two teams of cameras, but we'll have two cameras set up ready to rock and roll. And the goal is to have one bag with one camera set up and the other bag with the other camera set up and have everything we need for each camera and each setup in each of those bags. So that's the yep. idea. So in theory, we'll produce a lot more content with a lot less tiring, aching, walking, and back pain. And no more hauling around uh, a massive cart of stuff. Yeah. If you've seen us at SHOT Show, it ain't pretty. <laughs> and that's the other thing too. So, you know, part of our challenge is that we do the, you know, we do a lot of video stuff and interviews and stuff. And then we got podcasting that we're doing and it's like, how do we haul all of that around? And so that's the other challenge. I'm, I'm still working on fitting everything in uh, for podcast and video work and all that. So anyway, we're super excited. We're getting very, very much ready for SHOT Show. And just in a few days, I hit the road and, and head out that way and Jacob and the team fly out uh, Sunday morning, and then we have a busy, busy, busy week ahead of us. So, be sure to follow our to be be sure to follow our pot, uh, our shot show coverage. And uh, yeah, head to the website concealedcarry.com, our main page. You'll see there should be a link at the top. Not it's not there yet, but uh, there should be a link at the top of the page during during the week of shot show. Well, the link will be concealedcarry.com forward slash shot show. All oh, the word. That's right. There True. you go. Yeah, so you can do that too. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash shot show and check our coverage live throughout the week. Well, live, you know, meaning pretty much some of it will be live. We'll be doing some live Facebook live stuff and Instagram stories, all that. And uh, as soon as we are able to get stuff published, you'll see it go up on that page. So uh, we'll, we'll be working really hard to do that. Today's episode, by the way, is brought to you by... Our upcoming shot show coverage. <laughs> That's right. I forgot that was there. <laughs> <laughs> we we kind of already talked about it. Yeah, no, right? Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, I want to point your attention to is that we now have on our site available for sale, and we're super excited about this. Uh, Crossbreed, we have a whole bunch of products. Well, really, one, you know, it's their most popular product. So there may be other things coming, but for right now, we have the Crossbreed Super Tuck available for sale on ConcealedCarry.com. And Jacob worked really, really, really hard to get... Did you get all of the iterations of the Super Tuck? Well, for all the different firearms. And I got to tell you guys, if you carry a gun with light laser combo thing, that you're very frustrated at your inability to find a holster that works for that... I bet you the Crossbreed Super Tuck has got you covered. 658 unique firearm, you know, or and with, with and without light and laser combination available options. It is overwhelming. 
So yeah, if you carry that one gun that no one's ever heard of and you happen to add that one laser from that company that no one's ever heard of, I bet that they got the holster for you. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, you put in like every one of those SKUs uh, or products into our store. So uh, yeah, way to rock it there, Jacob. Yep, yep. <laughs> They're made to order, so when you place your order, it might take a couple of days for it to get out the door. But uh, yeah, yeah. So available now f- for sale from ConcealedCarry.com, the Super Tuck, the industry staple for inside waistband carry. I've had a crossbreed holster. In fact, my first, I would say, my first real holster was a crossbreed Super Tuck that I still have. And, uh, yeah, I, and I, it's, I think it's visible in our podcast logo. I'm pretty sure that's a super tuck. That's true. Yeah. yeah. The background image, even on that thing up there, I, I'd forgotten about that. Yes. Uh, the super tuck that, that is, yeah. So that's, a. have had that holster for mm, probably a decade now. It's been a long time that I've had that holster. So, Anyway, uh, hybrid holster. www.concealedcarry.com forward slash crossbreed. No, there we'll you go. It. I was gonna yeah. get. I was gonna get there. Jeez, sure you were. So, I realized I had a message here that I was supposed to read, and I was I was attempting to actually do that because I just tend to sort of talk, you know. But anyway, check it out. I'm super excited to see those for sale on our site. I've I've sort of personally moved on from the hybrid holster concept, but uh, but. For many, many, many of you listening, you you like those hybrid holsters, so now we got you covered with the crossbreed. So concealedcarry.com forward slash crossbreed. So with that, it is time, Jacob, should we spool up this week's case of the week from attorney Andrew Branca? Game on. All righty. So here is this week's case of the week, and it's a good one. So hold on. Here we go. Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for LawofSelfDefense.com. This week's Case of the Week involves some perhaps non-obvious risks and uncertainties you incur if you're involved in a use-of-force event that you now have to legally justify, specifically the risk that the folks investigating and judging your conduct may themselves be profoundly flawed individuals. Most of you will recall Michael Dreshka, the Florida handicapped parking spot shooter. Dreshka shot and killed Marquise McLaughlin after McLaughlin shoved Dreshka to the ground upon seeing Dreshka chastising McLaughlin's girlfriend for unlawfully parking in a handicapped parking spot. A notable facet of this case is that the Florida sheriff initially declined to arrest Dreshka on the very weak ground that he was prohibited from doing so because of Florida's self-defense immunity laws, but that Dreshka was nevertheless ultimately charged with manslaughter after submitting to an interview without benefit of counsel by a detective, George Moffitt, who then swore out a criminal complaint against Dreshka on that manslaughter charge. A member of the law self-defense community alerted me to a news story by the website Law Enforcement Today, reporting that this Detective Moffitt was himself arrested last week for showing up to a crime scene intoxicated. You can find a link to that news story in the text version of this case of the week by pointing your browser to lawselfdefense.com forward slash blog. And Detective Moffat showed up at the crime scene not just a little intoxicated either. According to the news report, 
After Moffat exited his unmarked detective unit, the deputies noticed signs of impairment. Field deputies noticed the detective smelled like alcohol, had bloodshot eyes, and was slurring his speech. As a result, deputies began a DUI investigation in tandem with the shooting investigation to which Moffat had responded. Moffat performed poorly in field sobriety tests, and there's no wonder why. A breath test taken several hours later indicated a blood alcohol level of about 0.13, half again above the 0.08 limit for driving impaired. Naturally, because this blood alcohol level was taken hours after the fact, it means that Moffat's actual blood alcohol level at the scene was substantially greater than this measurement. It is noteworthy that Moffat drove himself to the scene and he was armed at the time. It's also noteworthy that Moffat has previously been convicted of DUI. Why mention this at all? Not to criticize police generally, or even Moffat specifically, but rather as a cautionary tale about the risks of placing your fate, literally, potentially the rest of your life, in the hands of strangers who now have the authority to determine your future as a result of your engaging in a use-of-force event. I know a lot of law enforcement officers, and almost without exception, they are fine public servants. But I do mean almost without exception. The simple truth is that if you take any sizable group of people of any description, you'll always find a few bad apples, and law enforcement is not immune to this truth of human nature. Is there any way you can be certain that the police investigating your use of force case won't share the same poor judgment as Detective Moffat? No. You simply take your chances and hope for the best with the rest of your life hanging in the balance. Those are the stakes. That's not a great spot to be in, folks. The same flawed character risks apply even to judges who are, after all, only imperfect humans too. An example of this is Sol Wachler, who, when he was the chief justice of the highest court in New York State in the 1980s, played a key role in what I consider the railroading of Bernie Getz, the New York subway shooter, on murder charges. Getz would ultimately be acquitted of all the use of force charges and convicted only of a few violations of New York's punitive gun laws. Only five years later, Judge Wachler was sentenced to federal prison himself after having pleaded guilty to threatening the kidnapping of the daughter of his estranged mistress. Ironically, Judge Wachler would serve 13 months in prison, a full five months more than Bernie Getz would serve. Is there any way you can be certain the judge presiding over your use of force case won't be similarly flawed? No. Keep in mind, the moment you engage in a use of force against another person, you've now subjected yourself to the judgment of other people, police, prosecutors, judges, jurors, who have the power to determine whether you spend the rest of your life in a cage living with unpleasant people. Now, almost all of those people judging your fate will be honest and well-intentioned and interested solely in justice. Almost all of them. But whether or not they fall into that category is not something that's within your control. You have no power whatever over whether the folks who are judging your future fall into the large majority of good folks, on the one hand, or the minority who demonstrate the poor judgment 
of driving to a crime scene armed and so badly impaired that their own colleagues feel compelled to arrest them at the scene or of threatening to kidnap their mistress's daughter. The risks of getting into a fight aren't merely physical, folks, and they don't arise only in the context of a courtroom. Don't get into fights you don't need to get into. Make sure the risks you're incurring are worth the stakes. If you enjoyed this case of the week, I urge you to take a look at the Law of Self-Defense blog, the premier source for authoritative self-defense law education and insight. There's always free content available, as well as premium content for the Law of Self-Defense community. Just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash blog. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Wow, that's uh, quite the fascinating case. I mean, like it's a totally different side of this McLaughlin uh, Dreschka case, uh, which actually we have a story in the, in the podcast about today. A little bit of an update on that trial, or that on the, at least all those proceedings uh, regarding those the, the manslaughter charges against Dreschka. Um, yeah, I I heard this from from Andrew and I'm like, wow, I mean, like this is such a interesting turn and almost twist of one of the investigating detectives of the case. And you know how it just, I had no idea this was even going on in the background. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have much to add, you know, it's, this is just the reality of humans, you know, <laughs> humans do dumb things sometimes and make mistakes and, uh, We'd like to believe that all professionals generally do their best when they're at at duty, but sometimes you know, personal issues flow into our work world, right? And so, yeah, doctors sometimes do bad things, and so do cops and other people who we expect to be on their game, and that's that's just life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's move right along here. We've got a bunch of news stories to cover, and like I mentioned, we'll come back to that. Uh, case with an update uh, on that one out of Florida. But first, we want to give you some legislative updates uh, from, let's see, Wyoming, as well as, what was it, Kentucky? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and Oregon and, yeah. Yeah. So we've got, well, there's there's two states here that are kind of, this is kind of interesting to me. You got two states, Wyoming, where a bill has been proposed to eliminate gun-free zones in a number of public places. This is Senate, apparently they call them Senate File 75 in Wyoming. I don't know, almost everywhere else it's a Senate bill or House bill or whatever. But Senate File 75 looks to override the current restriction on gun bans within public buildings such as schools. This would override any local gun control laws and allow residents of Wyoming to to carry concealed in a larger number of places. And apparently this bill has a large amount of support on both sides of the aisle, according to the story on our own site, uh, wyoming.concealedcarry.com. And so, yeah, that's pretty cool to see. And then also, and I'll let you comment on the, on both these, Jacob, and especially on the Wyoming deal, since that one's going to be a little bit closer to you, you being a Wyomingite at heart. But uh, out of Kentucky, a very similar bill, uh, Kentucky House Representative Robert Goforth, uh, he 
he is sponsoring House Bill 30, which would allow the carrying of deadly weapons in previously restricted areas such as schools, including college campuses, bars, and other private businesses, and even the General Assembly if licensed to do so. And uh, it's believed that uh, Kentucky's current governor, Matt Bevan, who is uh, an absolute stud of a governor from what I've seen, uh, he's he's gotten kind of some public... Uh, exposure in the last few months over some statements that he's made, both about, you know, there was a response that he gave that that got quite a bit of traction after that uh, school shooting that happened in Kentucky last year, and uh, a couple other things that, you know, Governor Bevin has uh, been getting some attention for, really staunch support of the Second Amendment. So the, these two bills, both in Wyoming and also in Kentucky, expanding the ability of concealed carriers to carry in various places and expanding those those concealed carry rights, uh looking very good like there's a there's a good chance that these could get through yeah uh, you know what you have in wyoming is basically there's previous previous legislation that was designed to allow you know concealed carry on campus but the university of wyoming created kind of a campus policy firearm ban and that I, I look at this as more like a state preemption bill for wyoming it's like we got to stop local municipalities from from passing laws that are against the spirit of what we you know what we have on the books, and so we're going to put something on the books that's more specific, and would would pre- you know prevent that from happening. Uh, you know, Wyoming's only got one university, <laughs> so you know this it's it's not like we have to legislate you know and then deal with a bunch of different uh, you know large schools and and uh, you know academics. It's there's just the one <laughs> University of Wyoming. There's obviously other community colleges and things. But uh, yeah, that, I think that's what I get from that. It's worth mentioning just because I know I, I see this confusion a lot when I'm dealing with like my own students in a classroom setting or sometimes when we talk about these bills. When you see the word public, we're talking about taxpayer-owned stuff. So so when a bill says, you know, trying to remove prohibitions against concealed carry in public places, we're not talking about, you know, shopping malls. You know, a lot of us think of that as a public place, uh, you know, and in the traditional sense it is in that the public is allowed on the premise but when you write the word public into legislation, you're referring to things owned by taxpayers. So we're talking about you know city, state, county-owned buildings. We're talking about streets and sidewalks. Uh, we're talking about that kind of stuff. Yep, absolutely. And that's a great clarification as far as – I mean, this basically is a preemption bill, uh, which many states have, and uh, th- this definitely clarifies it in a big way. It's also a great point, Jacob, that Wyoming only has one – major university. No, one university. You can remove the word major. There's just one (laughs) university. Okay. There's only one. You don't even have a Wyoming state university. Like most states have a university of and a, you know, state. No such, you know, you have university of Wyoming. That's the only (laughs) university in the entire state. Yeah, and it's kind of in a bit of a cowpoke uh, town too. So uh, don't say that to people who live there, man. (laughs) I couldn't help it. All right, Tristan, you got to be enjoying this, I'm sure. Tris, a longtime listener of the podcast, uh, is from Wyoming as well, even though he doesn't live there now. But uh, he's probably Jacob's favorite listener of the podcast, I would guess. Well, let's just say we see eye to eye on a lot of things, and and probably our only listener in the whole state of Wyoming. That's not fair. Uh, all right. We've had guests on this show from Wyoming. <laughs> all right, let's move on here. Uh, Illinois, firearm registration and dealer licensing bill may reach new governor's desk. And this is according to NRA ILA. On January 10th, Illinois State Senate President John Cullerton re- removed a hold on a bill potentially to make the unprecedented move of attempting to send a bill passed by the previous legislature – 
to a newly inaugurated governor's desk. Though Senate Bill 337 passed from the General Assembly in May of 2018, that's quite a while ago, Senate Col- Senator Cullerton had placed a procedural hold on the bill to try to avoid the possibility of a veto as Governor Bruce Rauner had already vetoed similar legislation and instead placed it before the governor-elect J.B. Pritzker. This is real. This this is politics at its finest, I think. So you have a bill passed by the legislature like eight months ago. And, oh, but let's put that on a procedural hold because we hope and we think we're going to get a more favorable governor to sign it into law. Why don't you tell yeah. the listeners what's uh, what's the deal behind the Senate Bill uh, three thirty seven? Yeah, it it is like let you know politics at its best, and you know both parties do it right. So it's it's not like you know, anyone's void of this this technique. In fact, sometimes I wish we'd do it more often. Uh, anyway, this is an interesting bill. I actually tried to read it, but it's just too long. I didn't get through it before we started recording the podcast. But it has some interesting things. Like for example, it requires that an FFL have video surveillance. Anywhere where guns are stored and sold, um, and I, I thought that was kind of interesting. But you know, based on the way the NRA sees this, the way the NRA is reporting on it, what it does is it directs the state police to create an electronic transaction form for firearm transfers. And you know, obviously, in all states already, when you buy a gun from a dealer, a background check is run, and part of that background check goes through the NICS system, which does require certain paperwork be filled out, ATF paperwork, and generally there's some sort of state record. Uh, but most states destroy that that paperwork; it's not held on file, right? But if this new Illinois State Police electronic transaction form uh, were to exist, the way the Senate bill is worded suggests that 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 bill that that transaction form would be permanent, which ultimately over time would create a registry, right? Uh, depending on what they do with that and how they keep and congregate and organize the information from those forms, it could very much so be exactly a firearm registry uh, and not just kind of, you know, by nature, create one per se. It could very directly create one. So I, I think that this is very concerning. This is this is definitely alarming. Um, and I'll add that it's illegal. <laughs> the Firearm Owner Protection Act of 1986 makes it strictly illegal to create any sort of database or registry that includes guns and their owners. So the, the challenge is that, you know, that, that, that you can get around that a little bit if you're saying, well, we're not creating a database of gun owners and and their guns. We're we just have this form that's getting filled out. We're we're choosing to not destroy it or throw it away, right? We're keeping that form. Um, so it, it, that that's kind of that awkward. Like, wait a minute, is this you know expressly prohibited by the Firearm Owner Protection Act or not? Uh, either way, ain't cool. Yep, you got it. This is quite the story out of the state of Oregon, and I've got music playing in my ear from this website. Thank you very much, website. (laughs) I love autoplay video. Uh, Not. Oregon bill would require permits to buy guns, limit ammunition. Boy, I tell you, I've seen this in the last couple of days, and I was like, whoa, this is, boy, this is extreme. Now, as as you read about where this came from, it starts to make, I think, a little bit more sense. Basically, what what there is, is this is a bill proposed in the legislature this year, uh, sponsored by Representative Andrea Salinas uh, and Senator Rob Wagner. Uh, They submitted Senate Bill 501, and the bill came from Students for Change, which was a group of Lake Oswego teens formed last year after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. 
And they lobbied lawmakers and the governor to, and, and they came forward with this legislative proposal. So basically, we have a bill written by a bunch of students that I'm sorry, probably, I don't know, I, I hate to say it, like don't know crap. <laughs> No, okay, that's not really fair to say. But, you know, it's interesting to me. Like, we take a bill like this about a very serious matter, about something that affects the Second Amendment, which is kind of a big deal. And it came from the students, and these legislators are uh, submitting it uh, to to the legislature. Now, in the bill, a couple of things that really stand out. Number one, a max magazine size in the state of Oregon of five rounds. That pretty much rules almost every semi-automatic handgun illegal, or at least not able to use them. And the other thing, and this one like really got me kind of like, whoa. I mean, like that that's a that is the most aggressive magazine capacity limit proposed anywhere so far in this country. The second piece of this was a limit on the amount of ammunition you could purchase in a 30-day period to 20 rounds. An exception for gun ranges or or gun, uh, yeah, a place where you would buy that ammo and expend it on the premises. Which, by the way, this is a very European-sounding proposal. There's a number of European countries where that's the case, where you can't even really keep more than a certain number, you know, a very limited amount of rounds at home. Uh, but but the exception being if you buy it at the range and use it at that range at that time, then that's that's okay to do so. So this is a very European thing, but it's very aggressive. I mean, can you imagine being limited to only buying 240 rounds for your personal use? 240 rounds per year, Jacob. Not only that, a five-round magazine capacity limit. Like, what would you use, that, especially in the handgun realm, that would have a five-round capacity? I don't own one. Yeah, yeah. I, that's saying something, I'll add. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I can't think of really. I mean, okay, so like what? The XDS 45 when it first came out, or I guess mm. still does. The XDS, I think, is a five round gun. Like that, that's your one Some gun. Some revolvers. Yeah. Yeah. But but we're not even ta- we're talking about magazines. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's a good point. I don't, I didn't di- dive into the language of the bill enough to see like is a, is an eight shot revolver accepted? Is a six shot revolver accepted? Or is it five shot everything? I don't know. Like that's, Boy, this is uh, crazy stuff here. Now, just just to kind of put this in perspective, I don't think anyone, including the people who proposed this legislation, actually think it could pass. True. So it, now that that's important to note because it has some implications. First, that you have some some you know legislators are basically saying, hey, this this group has given us something they want us to propose it, so we feel obliged because they're our constituents to propose it on their behalf. That's interesting. But more important, you got to understand that it, it does tell us two things. And these are the more important takeaways here. First, it tells us that there are people out there who want this. Like this, this is how extreme, how far they're willing to go. The second thing it tells us is that you, you're starting – this is one of those you know, political games that we were talking about a minute ago when we were talking about the you know, holding on to the legislation uh, so that, until the new governor came in, right, so that we could avoid a veto. This is one of those where it's like, well – if we shoot for the stars, we might land among the moon, right? Like if, if, if we start the negotiation here, you know, at this point, 
then maybe we negotiate it back to something that seems more reasonable. I mean, if we go and say five magazine capacity limits and everyone freaks out and says, no way, no how, we say, oh, okay, okay, fine, 10 then, 10. It feels like we've all won. It's, it's like they want us to feel like we got a victory by only reducing magazines to 10 rounds when they when they asked for five, right? Does that make sense? And so you know, you got to watch out for that kind of crap. Yeah, that is exactly right. I mean, the, the fact that there are people out there that think that this sort of thing is reasonable and that this sort of thing is where this country needs to go. That's the scary thing because, yeah, I agree. And even this, one of the sponsors of the bill, uh, Senator Wagner, says it's a long shot that they're going to get this passed, right? But the fact they're willing to put it out there, and I'll tell you, just by, a, you know, legislators have great power in directing narratives, just the fact that they propose this puts it out in the public, you know, uh, for for uh, discussion. For it puts it out there in the public eye. Like, look, we're thinking about this, about going this far with gun control. And I guarantee you, there are people that will support this. That that number of people is going to be a minority, sure, but. There are also other people that can be easily swayed, and they may look at it, and over time, and the more they hear about these different proposals and different ideas and whatnot, that they're going to go, okay, yeah, I can get on board with that. All right, that seems reasonable. Oh, this is how things are done in Switzerland or whatever. Like, okay, sure, sounds good. And that's, by the way, that, that is how Switzerland is now. It used to be, there was a, like, I think back in 2012 where Switzerland uh, had a law passed that basically does this same thing that, that limits the number of rounds they can purchase at one time and or they can only store so many at home but they can expend however many they want at the range right so uh yeah now Jesse has a has a good point here he says didn't uh, New York have a seven round cap law at one point and and that is true the safe fact and, yeah. and actually kind of still I get a little bit confused on this point doesn't it still technically exist but they've sort of Given up on enforcing it, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so I mean that that gives you a sense. I mean, New York has already moved that direction. Obviously, this is more extreme, but uh, crazy stuff. So we'll be following this one. I, like I said, I, it's really doubtful it goes anywhere, but um, yeah. All righty. Um, next up, what do we got? We've got story- so carry reciprocity act. Yes, uh, John Senator John Cornyn, why don't you talk about this one, Jacob? All right, so you probably remember the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act of 2017 that uh, was debated in late 2017 and, in, and into 2018, and then kind of got shelved and died uh, in in you know early 2018. So Senator Cornyn is is back, you know, and, and as far as I can tell, is with the exact same proposed piece of legislation. And uh, yeah, there's, there seems to be some support. I don't have any sense for the possibility of getting this through. Maybe maybe it's great. Maybe there's actual legitimate you know possibilities of this happening. Maybe there's really not. But as far as I can tell, because I've done some Googling, I've tried to search, it doesn't appear that I, I can't get a copy of the new proposed act, right? So as far as I can tell, we've just taken the exact same thing that was proposed in 2017, and that's what we're reintroducing and trying to, to run through again. So, yeah, I suppose yeah. I should say what that is, right, well, for those who don't know. Right. Well, I was just going to say that that's how I read this as well, that uh, it, they're, they're just bringing back the same proposal as before, the same bill. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what this bill would essentially do is say uh, every state has to extend the same rights 
to anyone with a concealed carry permit from any state that they extend to people in their own state that have a concealed carry permit. Uh, and, and there's two kind of really important clarification points that always come up when we talk about this. One would be that if you're from a state that has constitutional carry, then no permit required. You essentially would, would be, it would be as if you had a permit everywhere you went. And the second thing that is really important is that the way the bill is written, it intends to apply to non-resident permits. So if I live in New Jersey and I can't get a New Jersey permit, I can go get a Arizona or Florida or Utah or Virginia permit, and that would effectively give me 50-state reciprocity, including in my own home state, New Jersey. So assuming that the, the bill is the same one from 2017, I, I think it's a well-written bill, and you know, it's got yeah. my support. You know, the, the interesting thing that we get into when we talk about national reciprocity, right, is kind of this this balance or this little bit of a, you know, uh, of a, uh, there's two things in opposition to some degree, right? As far as like the federal government proposing a law that applies nationwide that maybe steps in some, into some of the realms of state government, uh, meaning, you know, this balance between the 10th and the second amendments. And that's addressed a little bit in this article from WashingtonExaminer.com. But what I appreciate about the way Senator Cornyn's bill is written is that it doesn't establish any national standards for concealed carry. It doesn't establish a national permit. It just simply says if your state issues you a permit and you get a permit or you get a permit from a state, then that permit, just like a driver's license, and I know how we love to compare you know, guns to cars as relates to, you know, the second amendment. Well, there is no amendment for cars, right? You know, like, so it's not always a fair comparison, but it it would make permits operate much like a driver's license operates where a state issues it and all the other states, the only thing that's really regulated is that all the other states have to recognize other states' permits. Right. And, and, and I think that's actually a because here's the way I look at it, you know, like to to some people it would say, well, the Tenth Amendment, you know, states' rights, like how dare the second or the federal government, you know, trample on states' rights over a Second Amendment issue? And I'm thinking, well, but there is the Second Amendment, right? So that I think that it is fair, I think, for the gov- for the federal government to say, look, we're going to do this thing, okay, as it relates to the Second Amendment, and doesn't take anything away from the Second Amendment. Merely, if anything, enhances it, but also does it in a way that doesn't really trample too much, at least on states' rights. That states have, they still maintain the ability to regulate how those permits are issued and to whom. And I think most important is that it doesn't change the state's ability to legislate what the permit holder can do, where they can go, and how they can carry. Right? It, it, in the same way that we may say that your driver's license has to be val- honored by the other 49 states, but we still allow states to have their own traffic laws, right? If I have a Colorado driver's license and I cruise into Wyoming, I don't get to drive Colorado traffic laws in Wyoming. Wyoming still can have whatever traffic laws they want, and I am expected to follow those laws when I'm in that state. So we're not saying that you know New York City now has to allow you know full you know 15 round mags and that they have to allow me to carry on college campuses because I can do that in Colorado and we're not saying that Florida has to now let me carry a gun into bars that serve alcohol because I can do that in Colorado no we're not saying that Florida can still keep me from carrying in a bar that serves alcohol New York can still say that they don't want me to have magazine capacities of whatever that the reciprocity act simply says that whatever they let their permit holders do they have to let me do too I guess I better just start carrying a five-round XDS-45. 
<laughs> Although I don't even know if that gun is except if it's on all the different state lists. So maybe even that one's not quite safe. Who knows? Yeah, you'd have to check California for that. And one, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh okay, yeah. so yeah, so here's my here's my big gripe about this whole thing though. You know, Senator Cornyn, like good on you to reintroduce the bill, right? At the same time, where the crap were these guys last year when we had probably the the best ability in a long time and probably the only chance to get something like this passed during uh, President Trump's uh, term. You know, a president that probably would sign it is is our belief from what we've seen. Uh, you know, it's a campaign promise. And I yeah, and I know Senator Cornyn. You know, it's not. I don't think he was forgetting about it. It, it just it just goes to show, I think, how poor leadership was. I think at the you know in in the U.S. House and also in the Senate. You know, when we had this ability to get things like this pushed through, you know, the Hearing Protection Act and national reciprocity and all this stuff. Like, it's cool that he's proposed this again, but it's not happening in the House. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen at all. Yeah, yeah. it's. Bad timing, and you know, shame on the GOP leadership for not making this happen before. Yeah, uh, just I, I I am very sore about how everything went this last year. There's there were so many opportunities, but we let we let Parkland get in the way. And I don't I mean I don't mean to denigrate any you know I think Parkland was a terrible thing. It should have happened right, but it did happen. But it we allow I think what happens we allowed it to then guide and direct the narrative and i think house leadership and the senate said no we can't do that because it's, it's it's an unpopular thing anyway yeah we lost yeah, who's we lost unpopular a, now <laughs> we lost a big opportunity okay yeah. national review so uh this is where we're, where we're going to get kind of into a discussion about uh universal background checks okay so which is a proposal that's already you know being talked about in the u.s house uh, the now Democrat-controlled U.S. House. So we have several articles here. By the way, there's going to be some things that we talk about or, or that we reference that uh, are in the show notes, and you'd, you'd have to go there just to see everything. There's several news stories in the show notes uh, kind of along these lines of, of this topic. Basically, a couple of things we want to talk about here. Uh, first of all, there's an article from nationalreview.com that says there's a new report on where criminals get their guns. And I've seen this referenced in a few other stories elsewhere. And basically, there was this big survey done of, I can't remember, it was, it was thousands of inmates across the country asking them where, you know, asking first if they had committed a, a crime with a gun in their possession. And for those that did, where did they get that gun? Now, from this National Review article, let me just give you the quick rundown as far as the percentages. 43% of inmates that were surveyed got their guns from the so-called underground market, meaning they, they bought it likely from another criminal, right? Or from somebody that is basically in the business of selling guns to criminals, right? Which would be a criminal. <laughs> so uh, 40, 43% got their guns basically through illegal means. 6% got their guns through theft. About 10% got their guns from a retail source. Now, that's interesting, right? And I think how some of the media would like you to see this is that there's like all these gun dealers out there that are willing to break the law to sell guns to criminals. Now, I'm sure there are a few bad apples among the, you know, amongst the bunch, but 
I doubt that there's that many gun dealers that are getting away with regularly or often or I mean this knowing you know, Jacob you and I we 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 have a we have a contact we have a buddy that's a dealer right that I in the last year or so has been audited twice by the ATF right yep so like the yeah the point is <laughs> these dealers are being monitored they're being checked into they're being audited it's not like we have a rampant problem with rogue gun dealers selling to criminals so if a criminal gets a gun from a retailer, they pretty much have to, are, you know, they got to go through a background check of some sort. Now it can be handled a lot of different ways in different states, right? But chances are the reason they're able to buy it is because something didn't come up in their background check that prohibited them. Or or they just were very much so law-abiding citizens at the up point that of that point. purchase. Yeah, Correct. Sure. Right. It happens like all the time. Right. But still, it's it's worth noting that 10% got them from a retail source. Okay. All right. Moving on. I don't see that as necessarily being a problem. That seems plausible. Like you said, plenty of guys have never been caught for something yet, or it's their first time committing a crime, and that's how they obtained the gun. It was from a retailer. All right. 11% of the time, someone else bought the gun for them, either as a gift or as a straw purchase. Gift, I would put in quotes. <laughs> um, although I'm sure it, it, it has happened. 15% got guns from family and friends, either buying, renting, trading, or borrowing, which in almost all universal background check laws proposed, there is an exception for uh, transfers between family members, right? So like even that doesn't necessarily fix this so-called loophole. Uh, you know, at least this this particular option where people might be able to buy a gun or get a gun from a family member. Now, obviously, it's still illegal federally for a family member to knowingly transfer a gun to a known criminal, especially to a felon, right? And about 12% of the time, the guns were either brought to the crime by someone else or found at the scene. So just looking at those statistics right there alone, Jacob, I don't really see anything that would say that universal background checks would magically fix. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I don't see yeah, I can't I don't see a single source at which a criminal in the survey got their gun that had there been universal background checks, they would have been thwarted. I mean, let alone stopped, right? Because it's one thing to say, well, they wouldn't have been stopped because it's easy to say, well, they would have tried to to buy a gun at the store, they would have failed to pass the background check, and then they could have gone and gotten from some other source. No, I don't I don't even see any situation where any of these criminals would have even been slowed down, not even thwarted at all in getting their gun had universal background check laws been in place. Well, that brings me to ask an interesting question here because the the next article in our show notes here, by the way, show notes for today's episode can be found at concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 287. Trace.org, which is, uh, they try to come across as being a fair, unbiased source of information and news on gun-related matters and, and gun control and, and whatnot. But do you know who's behind Trace.org, Jacob? I think it's every every town. Yeah, every town f- uh, for, what is it, every town? For gun safety. For gun safety. Yeah, every town for gun yep. safety, yeah. Bloomberg. Or- so Michael Bloomberg is behind Trace.org. They, I will say they do a, a, a good job of attempting to come across as being very fair and unbiased in their presentation of you know, uh, the different information and stories and things that they cover. 
Um, this article is not terrible. Actually, is I think pretty pretty fair. There's a couple of things that I definitely that stick out to me. I go, ah, yeah, okay. Now I'm starting to see a little bit of what I think is the bias coming through. But this article on trace.org is what we know about the effectiveness of universal gun background checks. Now, to the follow-up of that last story, Jacob, I would ask this. It, we, we were just talking about... Um, Oh, where is it? I'm trying to, sorry, I'm scrolling through this. And it's kind of a fairly detailed article here. Um, I had the paragraph, but it's it's now gone. We were just talking about, uh, you know, you mentioned, well, I don't see any word that a universal background check, you know, would have really made any difference. But there is a quote here from a kind of Rose Kagawa. That's a Japanese name, Rose Kagawa. Uh, was a study that is referenced in this article on the trace.org. And Ms. Kagawa says, in individual cases, people who are denied, and she's referring to those that are denied uh, the ability to purchase a gun after going through a background check. In individual cases, people who are denied have lower arrest rates. So there you are seeing an effect. But at the state level, you're not seeing the impact. And this is referencing that there are some studies, according to the 2001 study by Garen Wintemute and this colleague, Rose Kagawa of University of California, Davis, they found that Californians convicted of violent misdemeanors who had been denied a gun sale by the state's background check system were less likely to be rearrested for a violent or gun crime than people with similar criminal histories who were not denied. I don't even know what to make of that, but uh, your thoughts. Yeah, you're you're open up a can if you ask me to talk about universal background checks. Like uh, <laughs> this stuff just makes me super angry. This is one of those super, um, you know, sensitive points for me. You know, we talk about this this article from the trace.org, and uh, I, I actually really like reading stuff on the trace.org, even though I know it's like purposefully anti-gun because it's probably the most intelligent content on the internet that is that is anti-gun like i can't i i don't know any other websites that make better more intelligent arguments about gun control than the trace.org yeah. they, they they just they're really smart really I, smart i've reviewed the uh, financials of the nonprofits of every town for gun safety and uh they they spend millions per year on the trace.org so obviously they're yeah. spending the money to get to hire the you know the right smart people, people. and to these be guys able to write actually this stuff. they all add that I've also never found the trace.org write anything about guns that was inherently stupid. Like you see so many mistakes, like you know calling guns by the wrong names or parts by the wrong words or using things like fully out of fully semi out of you know we we could laugh at the list of like errors and ma- massive mistakes that idiots make when they when they try and talk about guns. The trace.org never. They, they always do their research and their homework. It's almost like they got some really good, like avid gun owners, like that they pay to make you know, to check their crap to make sure they don't sound. Anyway, that's not the point. Here's here's the deal. The trace.org in this very lengthy article basically says, "Hey, uh, do back universal background checks reduce gun violence?" No, we have no research to suggest that they do. I mean, they might, but there's just no real data that for sure would say that they they do. There's there's just nothing that really would back up that claim. But, you know, it might. And and there's some other things we think that universal background checks do reduce trafficking. Uh, There is a piece of research 
that says that, that it does reduce uh, trafficking. Of course, that research comes from, listen very closely, Daniel Webster of the John Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. <laughs> but anyway, the, there, there is this – Right, fantastic. There's this one piece of research – that, that says that, you know, maybe it reduces trafficking. And, and let me clarify what we mean by this. Think of it this way. The argument goes something along these lines. Okay, well, if in Colorado we don't allow private transfers without a background check, but in Arizona we do, then what are the criminals going to do in Colorado? They're going to go to Arizona and get guns. And so the, the, that just makes total sense to me. I believe that, like immediately. I raise my hand like, yep, I believe you. Because if I was a criminal, that would seem like the least – painful way to get a gun, right? So to go to a state where I can just go find someone on Craigslist, sell one and buy one, right? Like criminals will always take the path of least resistance. And so as long as that's available to them, I believe that they do that. Like I, I inherently believe that. But if we create a federal law against universal background checks, does that mean that then that criminal won't be able to get a gun? Or does it just mean that they're going to change their tactic? It, you know, it's not apples to apples. You can't say, well, if that law exists in all 50 states, it wouldn't be a problem anymore. Uh, but there's so many inherent problems. That, and that's what really pisses me off is articles like this. They they only look at the pros, right? They only they only look at the the things why why universal background check laws would be good. Nothing in this article addresses the common complaints against it. There's nothing here that says, well, then you know wh why then are so many people fighting against this? Well, because it actually has some massive drawbacks. There's nothing in here about any of the drawbacks, and that's what really makes me angry. It doesn't say anything about the fact that well, gun owners maybe are opposed to this because the second you have universal background check laws. I promise you it will not take long to have a universal firearm registry in this country. It, it, it just it, – it's an inevitability for two reasons. One, because a lot of these politicians and a lot of these people, they want gun registry and they know that in order to get there, they have to first have background checks, universal background checks. One has to happen in order for the other hap it to happen. And secondly, even for the people who aren't proactively targeting a gun registry – they're going to discover very quickly that universal background check laws without a gun registry are completely unenforceable, right? That the only way to actually get out of universal background check legislation, the stuff you want to get out of it, is to create gun registry because without it, you have no backbone. It doesn't work. Right. And and if anything, there's a lot of studies uh, about California and using California as the study because, number one, they, they have a history of – more strict gun control than most of the rest of the country, and they have a little bit longer history than many of the of the other states. And uh, the interesting thing there about California is that they they have a form of registry, especially for handguns, right? Uh, which so at least in the hand in the in the, I, I think that's if if you're going to make the case, and there are some that would make the case that it's that background checks have been a little bit more effective in California. Well, maybe that's because they actually have a little bit more back, back, backbone, like you just described, Jacob. Um, but the reality is actually, I mean, we have to look at things in terms of not just homicides, but violent crime in general. You know, assaults, uh, robberies, you know, the, these these violent felonies that are committed. And right now, 
it's not looking good in California. I'll tell you, I'll be straight up with you. I've been reviewing some of their crime statistics in the last several years. Uh, actually, I've looked at the last 20 years, just trying to identify if there's any sort of trends or anything like that. And I'm not some you know fancy university researcher or anything, but I can look at numbers and go, hmm, it's interesting that in the last two or three years, violent crimes in California per capita are really on the rise even while California continues to get stricter and stricter and stricter with regards to their gun laws. So the other thing, too, I like to point at, as far as just answering some of the questions and and different things pointed out by the trace.org and some other sources out there, forget about universal background checks. What What about countries? Let's use other countries as a case study where guns are just like outlawed, especially handguns. And violent crimes committed with guns are on the rise in Australia and in the UK and elsewhere in the, in the world. That's really telling to me. You know, like, forget about background checks. <laughs> what if we just took guns away? And the reality is it's not working the way that they want you to believe that it works in some of these other countries. Yeah. I mean, here one last thought about this trace.org, and I know we got to move on, but... You know, when you get to the bottom of this, this article, you know what it says? Okay, so, yeah, the universal background check thing may not be great. So what what does work? Hmm. <laughs> That's my favorite. So what type of screening does reduce gun violence? And then it says, well, permit-to-purchase systems have shown a lot of promise. And it cites some research, and it talks about, you know, four, four states that require gun owners get a permit in order to be able to buy a gun, and six additional states that require you have a permit in order to buy a handgun. So, so we have 10 states in this country that require me as a gun owner. I have to go out and apply for and get a license, a permit, a firearm owner identification card, whatever they might call it. And I have to have that in order to then be able to go to a gun store and make a purchase. And it says that's the that's the what we should be going for. You know, the, this background check thing is yeah maybe, but but we definitely should be getting gun owners to have to register themselves with the government. That has mm-hmm. that has promise. Yeah. <laughs> if that doesn't scare you. You yeah you got it, buddy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I got nothing more to add. That that that's that's the idea, right? Like. Uh, they say that those show some promise. Uh, once again, they're referencing quite a bit from Webster, Mr. Webster, that I'm not convinced is an unbiased researcher. Uh, and that's one thing I have to look really carefully at some of these studies is if there's any sort of bias by the researchers involved. The thing that was really interesting that we shared on the podcast a week or two ago was the study that was looking at California that was done and it used California and uh, what was the other state they used as their control? Pennsylvania. It, you know, looking at some of the effectiveness of gun law, gun control laws in California, and these were not what I would call. I mean, if anything, these guys might be inclined to be biased towards the anti-gun side of things, and they pretty much had to admit in their research that gun control in California not really working the way we you know would like it to. Right, so let's pass more. That's the solution that they have, right? Yep. In order, in order for the stuff we've already passed to help, we oh, we gotta have to pass some more stuff. That's that slippery slope. That's really telling to me, though, when when researchers that are not necessarily gun friendly admit something like that. That tells me something uh, that that if anything, that's research that I'm going to be more inclined to believe, as opposed to research done by somebody schooled at some Bloomberg, you know. Uh, School of Public Health or whatever, 
right? Yeah, yeah, but it still it still does play to the the overall end goal, right? Because the end goal has got to be beyond this current proposed legislation. It's got to be, you know, we got several things we got to do in order to have an effect. These little things we've done so far aren't good enough. Uh, even if we get this passed, you know, at the federal level, we're going to have to do more if we really want to have an impact. Yep. Clearwater, Florida. This is the uh, Glockton or Micklockton uh, Drake case, right? Michael Drake, uh, he is the guy that was approached by um, McLaughlin after Drake basically verbally assaulted the dude's girlfriend, and uh, McLaughlin shoved Drake. Drake fell to the ground, drew his gun, and shot McLaughlin. Right? That's that's the summary. Most of you are familiar with that case. Trial is set to begin in August, and what this update on the on the case is is, and he's been charged with manslaughter. Uh, the 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 update here is that it's looking like his defense attorneys are not going to, that they're going to decline a stand your ground hearing, that they want to go straight to a jury trial, which is the same thing that happened in the Zimmerman case. Now, Zimmerman was not a stand your ground case. That's why it, it did not have a stand your ground uh, hearing. <laughs> that, and this one isn't either. <laughs> and that, that's how I viewed it as well, right? But the weird thing is that you have the sheriff of that county that said it was a stand your ground issue. Well, it's because the sheriff doesn't know what he's talking about. I know. It's, it's, there's just so much confusing stuff going on with this uh, So let me story. clarify, too, why there w- could be a hearing, right? So for those to understand, the, the way the Stand Your Ground law is written in Florida is it basically says if if this person, you know, if, if this law applies, if it, if it is a Stand Your Ground case, then you have the right to be protected from prosecution, so that hearing is your opportunity to say this is a stand your ground issue, and therefore I I I don't have to be you know I, I'm I'm saying I shouldn't be prosecuted at all, right? It prevents you from going to a jury trial at all, uh, but then you have to prove that it's a stand your ground issue, right? And in this case, we obviously, despite the the sheriff not knowing much, the defense lawyers they must know something. <laughs> the defense lawyers must say, man, we would be a serious waste of our time and a bad you know use of of judgment to try and, and you know go for the stand your ground argument here because it's really not relevant. We're going to have to go to jury trial. Right, and I, that's what we have to be clear on. That's what, what's, what's important for listeners to understand is that, you know, and you and I, we've already talked about this case, and Andrew Brink has talked about this case, and looking at the case, it, it doesn't really appear to be a stand your ground case. And the attorneys clearly got to know that, and thus it would be, really, it would be a really poor tactic for them to push for a stand your ground hearing Knowing that the judge probably would rule against them on that, and that doesn't look good going into a trial, knowing that that is now going to be kind of a part of all of that, that you already have a judge saying that it wasn't stand your ground. And and the, the defense attorneys would much rather play to the emotions of a jury and try to you know put some doubt in their minds about it and not have on record that a judge has already ruled that it wasn't a stand your ground defense. Uh, they don't. They they only have the other play that it well it must have been some sort of other type of defense, right? Is, right. Am I am I on the same page as you there? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're saying hey we think it's there's the self defense is justified so we're ready to go argue that. But we're going to waste time, energy, and public perception if we go fight the stand your yeah. ground battle. There you go. All right. 
So interesting update out of that case, and we'll continue following that one. As I, I, that one's a fairly high-profile one, so it'll it'll stick around with us for a while. Emmeland reports Boston mayor wants to require doctors to ask a patient's own guns. Yep, that's true. <laughs> we had a little bit of a discussion, I think, on the podcast, Matthew and I, uh, last week, and uh, had some really interesting comments, too, from uh, listeners, uh, especially those uh, following on Facebook. And... Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot, a lot of opinions on both sides about this issue of doctors getting involved in medicine, uh, or in doctors involved in guns. Uh, so, but what's interesting about this one is that Massachusetts, the state, is looking at requiring medical professionals to ask patients about guns in the home and to bring up the topics of gun safety. So requiring it is one thing as opposed to like doctors voluntarily wanting to be helpful, I guess. I don't know. People still have very strong opinions against doctors asking anything at all about this. And I totally understand that as well. In fact, I kind of shared my own experience about recently having to answer a questionnaire where that question came up and I left it blank. What I find interesting is that sometimes you, when you people will talk about uh, why we should be talking about guns inside of medical offices, inside doctor's appointments. Uh, they, they'll sometimes say, well, we want to make sure that, uh, that, it's not, that it doesn't become part of the patient's or medical record, right? But I totally don't buy that that won't be the case because in the case of me filling out my questionnaire asking me if I had any guns in the home, that questionnaire, by golly, is going to end up in my file. So by me answering that, it's going to be in my medical record. So I, I find it hard to believe that, I mean, that's been kind of the standard operation, I think. Uh, you know, once this started becoming a thing, that you almost always fill out these questionnaires when you go to the doctors, especially for the first time. So if they're asking that question on the questionnaire, it's going to be in your file. So you can't tell me that it's not going to go on my record. Right. Well, am I, yeah, am I wrong? I, I, yeah, I mean, I have I have a lot of opinions about it too. So no, I don't think you're wrong. Um, I think that some of this is is like wordsmithing and context, and and I think I said this last time. Was I on the? Maybe I was just listening to you and Matthew talk about it. Maybe I was. But anyway, I can't remember I, I do either. Think, <laughs> I think context matters a little bit because if we're talking about me just sitting in a standard doctor's appointment doing an annual checkup, and you know. So do you drink? No. Are you smoking? No. Okay. Uh, do you have guns? You know, like that, that, that's a different kind of context than me sitting down in a shrink's office and saying, man, I, I'm freaking out. Like I've been thinking about like hurting people, you know, and, and, and knowing that I have that doctor patient confidentiality and, you know, opening up and saying that I'm, I'm a bit of a loony or that I'm, I'm having these, you know, very violent tendencies. And that doctor saying, well, do you, do you own any guns? That's completely different context. Now, there's also a difference between requiring something to happen versus allowing doctors to have discretion. And so I believe I believe in the discretion argument. And there's also a difference between um, allowing that doctors can ask a question versus requiring that doctors report the answer. And so I, I th- you know, there's some careful lines to draw there where I don't think I'm not okay with what the Boston mayor is suggesting. I'm not okay with the idea of requiring the question be asked. Uh, but I do think that doctors should be able and allowed to ask the question if they want. And if you don't like it, go get a different doctor. And also, I'm yeah, opposed to, yeah, like I, if, 
if the doctor wants to ask, let him ask. That's fine. I don't care. Like it's free market, man. And then, like I said, in some contexts, it might be the doctor feels very much so uh, their medical obligation for the safety of the patient. Uh, you know, if the person's like, yeah, I'm thinking about taking my life, you know? So, so, you know, if the doctor wants to ask, I think they should be allowed to ask. I don't believe in, in the pro gun supposed legislation legislation that, that pro- prohibits doctors from bringing up the topic. I think that's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. just as ridiculous as requiring them to bring up the topic. And I also am very much so opposed to any legislation that would require the doctor report it, right? The, the, any sort of reporting from the doctor, that is also a complete invasion of patient confidentiality, not to mention a myriad of other rights that we have. Yep. So that's that's where I'm at on this. Yep, agreed. Anyway, um, I generally yeah, I'm opposed to this type of thing, especially if it's especially if it's going to be required, and especially if it's being reported. And uh, yeah, so if you're Massachusetts, I don't know. Let them know you don't like it, <laughs> and, and we the rest of us should be really sharp, you know, and be watching. I mean, this is the sort of thing that constantly, I'm sure, many other legislatures and legislators would love to try to sneak into some kind of you know bill or whatever. And and uh, yeah, I'm not sure what use that that really gives them as, as far as like if that sort of thing is kept in records, if it's required to be reported or kept in records, other than obviously there's the fear that it could turn into some sort of registry and could turn into some sort of, you know, confiscation type measure. And especially when paired with red flag laws, and that's probably the bigger concern, is if you get a state that passes red flag laws and it's also a state that requires doctors to ask you about guns in your home and they're required to report certain things well, now you might end up with a situation, and there are states that have written laws, those some of these red flag laws that would allow medical professionals to be in the list of those included, of, of those that can file that you know uh, that type of restraining order, you know, g- uh, gun violence restraining order or extreme risk protection order, and so yeah, I mean, you could see how it could kind of make the loop here of going from you know, having a conversation with your doctor, doctor reports something, next thing you know, police showing up at your doorstep asking asking for your guns. You know that that and, and I think that's a a little bit probably a little bit extreme of an example, but we're not that far removed. I think from getting to that point, especially in some of the more anti-gun states. So, sure, sure, yeah. All right, let's jump now. We got we got several justified stories we got to cover, but before we get into those justified stories, here's one that didn't maybe go quite perfectly well. I mean, generally worked out okay, but. There were perhaps some mistakes made. Uh, on our speaking of Massachusetts, Massachusetts.concealedcarry.com site, uh, a story called Father's Warning Shot Scares Off Attackers. And basically, what we had happen here is a 15 year old boy tried to sell an iPhone. He listed it, found somebody on Snapchat apparently. I, I've never like thought of trying to sell something on Snapchat before, but okay, whatever. <laughs> he found a buyer, a potential buyer on Snapchat. Snapchat. The buyer, interestingly enough, showed up at the house in a vehicle, backed the car into the driveway, which maybe at the time that obviously clearly the boy and or his father didn't really think anything of it. But looking back now, you go, oh, that's because these guys wanted to make a quick getaway. And uh, one of the passengers in that vehicle, the the window uh, rolled down, and the boy approached, you know, anxious to make his sale on his iPhone, 
And as he was greeted by the supposed buyer in the vehicle, the, they presented a gun and said, you know, give me your give me your phone sort of thing, right? The boy was startled. He turned and shouted, gun. His father, hearing this, drew his own gun and fired a warning shot into the air, prompting the would-be robbers to flee from the scene. They were later caught, and they were found with a gun and ammunition in possession. Uh, but so, I mean, like... It, it, it's all worked out, okay? And it's a scary thing, right? 15-year-old boy, uh, his dad apparently is right there and supposedly so supportive of this transaction. Uh, but I don't know that I put my own child into that kind of position as far as setting up a meet with an unknown person that's unvetted to sell an item. Just doesn't seem like a, a very good idea of risk to me. You know, that there, it's unacceptable risk in my opinion. But uh, either way, uh, the, the big thing here as far as what not to do, why this is in our what not to do segment is the warning shot. Uh, you know, like, yeah, generally we don't do that. It's a bad idea. And dad needs, dad needs to know that. So if he's listening and hopefully he's already learned the lesson, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. I mean, there are some interesting good things to take from this though. I'm thinking, you know, my, my 15 year old son wants to sell something I have the buyer come to my home and meet us here. I know that sometimes we just, you know, discourage this idea of coming to my home, you know, but but the point is the father, you know, to some degree perhaps picked an environment that he had over which he had some control. He yeah. had a position of safety uh, versus I'll I'll drive, you know, 15-year-old boy, you know, just now go meet that dude. Here's the here's the keys to the car or I'm going to drive 15-year-old boy uh, somewhere where I may have a, a weaker you know, point. So the idea, you know, we talk about this lots of times, but anytime you're doing these kind of private transaction deals, doing them in a place where you have uh, you know, public attention, you know, the parking lot of the police off the police department, uh, the Walmart parking lot. Uh, and in this case, you know, I think also, you know, a position of security that, that, that is probably some good advice. The father was also prepared. The father was armed. Uh, the, by the nature of the story, it's very clear the father did not run into the house, run upstairs, open the gun safe, grab the gun, and run back down. Uh, he had the gun on him for sure, just by the nature of the speed at which he had to respond yeah. to the teen running back toward the house, shouting gun, and then the teen trips and falls, and boom, father is on it. He is right there getting the job done. So there are some, some good takeaways there as well. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff. All right. First justified story. And that one kind of was, right? Like the father was justified to use deadly force, but probably should have just shot at the car. Now, I actually had a thought about that, Jacob, as you were talking. And my thought was, you know, it would have been better if he had just shot at the bad guy in the car. But maybe he couldn't even do that because of the location of his son. Maybe his son was between sure. him and the vehicle, right? Maybe that's yep. why he he made the shot into the air as opposed to at the vehicle. Um, at the very least, if you're if you were okay, so if we're going to be all theoretical, if you were going to fire a warning shot, do it into the ground, especially where you know that ground is soft and or is of a nature that you're not going to likely get a ricochet or splatter from that bullet, right? Like that. That's probably what I would say. You know, if if Dad could could fire that warning shot into the grass then like that would have been a gazillion times better than firing that shot up into the air. Anyway, so I just thought that was another kind of a side note or a little side thought I had about, well, maybe the son, because of his position, is why dad couldn't reach, you know shoot at the bad guy. But anyway, who knows? This story is crazy, Jacob. The title of this podcast, by the way, says something along the lines of um, another mass shooting stopped or something like that. And because of where that came from is this story right here. 
this story from uh, WAAYTV.com in Huntsville, in the Huntsville, Alabama area, I believe this was. It just says Huntsville, so I assumed that was Alabama. Yeah, as far as I can tell. Anyway, um, the private security officer stopped shooting suspect at Huntsville nightclub. The way the story goes and the amount of detail we get, this is rare in news reporting in these days. You have a private security officer who was present when an individual by the name of of Samuel Williams, uh, he was kicked out of the club because he was fighting inside. He was unhappy about being kicked out of the club. He then went to his vehicle and retrieved an AK-47 style rifle and started shooting. He started coming back towards the club, apparently while shooting. The armed security guard, who was the only security guard, or the only armed security guard on site, she drew her gun and fired back, and she struck him. Uh, this it seems to me, the way I read this story, and why would this guy go and get an AK-47? Except that he's going to go inside that club by force if necessary, right? He got kicked out. He doesn't like what happened to him inside that club. He was in a fight. He didn't like somebody. He was going back in that club to murder somebody. And he was already shooting, apparently, right? So this could have turned into a mass shooting. Yeah. Right? yeah. Either his intent was to kill some specific individual or his intent was to just kill random people. Right. Either way, it was not going to go well. By the nature of him grabbing the gun and, and then just starting to fire, like it seems to me that there was some some measure of indiscriminate mm-hmm. you know, firing you know, just not really caring who he hit. So really, really, really bad situation. But the security guard was armed and ready, and she shot and hit him. And then it says he also she also immediately worked to make sure he was okay. Like she shot him, she put him down, she then administered aid. Now, not that she was required to do so, but for whatever reason, she felt like she, that was the appropriate thing for her to do. I hope that she did so after she made sure that she was safe. Right. She was a rock star. I mean, here's the quote. I'm mm-hmm. not here to kill anyone. I saw one of the entry wounds was on his thigh, which can sometimes be a somewhat dangerous place to bleed out. I keep a trauma kit and tourniquet on me as everyone who carries should, end quote. <laughs> she must listen to the podcast. She's hardcore. <laughs> now, here's another cool little detail that I just thought was worth reading. And this is another uh, quote from, from the armed security guard. She says, quote, he started to make moves toward the door. He was still fi- – was still firing off shots. I decided I had to make a choice to go ahead and stop him from entering the club. I was behind a vehicle right here at the first handicapped parking spot and basically just maneuvered around the vehicle as he maneuvered around the other side of it to make sure I was properly concealed and covered, end quote. (laughs) And that's when she said she took a shot at Williams hitting him at least once and then worked to make sure he was okay. So she was tactical. She was on it. Clearly she had thought through this kind of situation. What, What if this? What if that? What if someone starts walking toward this club shooting? She immediately responded. She took a position of cover. She did what was necessary to keep herself concealed and in a position of safety. She got the shots off. She did the job. And then she made sure the dude survived. Pretty impressive. It's a remarkable story and remarkable not only because of the story itself, but also because they actually reported on this. Uh, and this sort of thing, this should be getting national coverage, in my opinion. But yeah. it's not. And we yeah. rarely get this level of detail. I'm just yeah. very impressed with the level of detail. And even when she's like talking to the news uh, station, there's a video in here. She's just very articulate and very calm, and she just rocks it. Yep. Rock star, like you said. Awesome story. An amazing story. Like I said, that I, I, I would... If it were me, and if I, 
I were the FBI, I would be seriously, I'd have to think seriously about including that in my next active shooter statistics. Yep. Agreed. The way, the way that one reads anyway. All right. KET, KETV.com channel seven, ABC affiliate, Omaha, Nebraska cafe employee pulls gun to protect restaurant patrons from crazed men. Now this story is crazy. Basically sounds like some sort of domestic, domestic incident. It, it started when, uh, Patrons as well as employees in this Amato's Cafe uh, downtown noticed. Actually, I don't know if it's downtown, but it looks like kind of a downtown type area. If you know, looking at some of the images and whatnot, basically they noticed that a man and a woman were in some sort of altercation. He was beating her and screaming at her and trying to get her back into the vehicle. Uh, some folks ran out there and was able to get her to safety. Okay, they he, brought her into the restaurant. Right. Yep. Yep, and, and and far like they did everything they could to get her away from him, and also where she, where he couldn't see her and 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 stuff. So like they did a re- really remarkable job, I think, especially knowing more detail of what came next. Uh, those folks did an amazing job getting that woman to safety. It, she, it probably would have ended poorly for her, or even somebody else. Now here's here's the other thing: after they managed to get the woman to safety, the man then attempted to take off in the vehicle. Uh, he reversed into the curb, causing it to flip into the street. It's it's on its side. After getting out of the car, he then came to the uh, came back up to the cafe's doors. Uh, he then managed to make his way through the back of the the back door in the back of the building, uh, somehow forcing it open. And when he came in, he was armed with a knife. One of the cafe's employees drew his gun and threatened to shoot the man. He tossed his knife and then left and then went back to his vehicle and jumped on top and then screamed for 30 minutes until police officers were able to get him down. Yep. Pretty, pretty, pretty crazy stuff. And uh, <laughs> like, you can't make this up. <laughs> no, you can't. And just an- another good story of so much detail, right? Car stops an intersection. Woman climbs out, man climbs out screaming, trying to drag her back into the car. Restaurant employees run out, grab woman, pull her into the restaurant, hide her in the back where he can't see her. Lock all the doors they can lock. He's pounding on the glass, wants to get in, screaming, comes around the rear to the one door they can't lock from the inside, forces his way in. He's holding a knife. The uh, owner's son, who the owner said he wasn't just, he just wasn't ever sure about his son carrying that gun, but today it worked out. The owner's son draws the gun, warns him, gives verbal notifications. Man still doesn't respond. He has to fire. Uh, or, he yeah, didn't fire. No, he didn't fire. Excuse me. Yep. The man throws his knife away, backs out of the kitchen. And then he climbs on top of the car and starts screaming. It, it, it's just you can't you can't make this crap up. Like you said, it's just amazing, great detail here. And the woman uh, who was saved from this man said that she honestly thinks that that armed citizen in that restaurant saved her life. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I don't doubt that. To be honest, I mean, this guy was crazy. He had intent. Uh, the fact that he's willing to come into that restaurant with a knife in hand. I mean, things were. Things were not getting any better. They were getting worse by the minute. And, uh, you know, there was this quote from the owner of the restaurant saying, I have always worried about Tony having a gun, but thank God he had a gun, right? Like, and, and that that's the truth right there because, I mean, the, imagine the alternative. It's, it's just like talking about the recommendations from Parkland to have teachers be armed. Uh, if you don't have that gun and and suddenly you're facing somebody with a gun or with another deadly weapon, like you, you don't really have a lot of options except for 
you know, maybe run, hide, cower in fear, or try to take them down, but at great, great, great bodily risk to yourself. But if we have a gun, I mean, it just simplifies it so much <laughs> in most cases, right? Like this dude, the owner of the restaurant was always a little bit concerned about Tony having that gun and apparently knew it and apparently didn't say, hey, you can't have it, just was a little concerned about it, but now is oh so grateful that he did. Yep, that's right. Crazy stuff. Jacob, can you talk about this next one for us? Cleveland store owner employee shoot at armed duo during robbery, according to cleveland.com. I thought this story was also pretty interesting. There's some soapbox stuff in this one that uh, you know regular listeners will be used to hearing. So let me give you the timeline, the, the plot line here, and then I'll, I'll break it down and give you the soapbox. So armed dudes go into grocery store. They, they're masked, they, they're armed, they go up to a 59-year-old store owner, okay, and, no, excuse me, 46-year-old employee working the register, and they, they say, hey, you know, give us, give us the money, right, give us the cash, and the 46-year-old employee uh, hands them the cash drawer, which didn't have much money, like 80 bucks, it says, in it, okay, now at this moment, when the 46-year-old has handed over the cash, the men have it in hand, a 70-year-old employee who's not behind the register, presumably, he sees that the robbers have their guns out, and, they're, and, and so he pulls out his own gun, and he fires. Presumably, he's the first one to fire shots. He fired four shots at the robbers, okay? Then the store owner, who appears to be a third person working in this grocery store, he's neither the, the person behind the cash register nor is he the 70-year-old employee, he pulls out his gun and fires a shot as well, Okay? Now, uh, I'm trying to remember – I think we have two armed robbers. Yeah, two robbers, and they they both take off running. They go out the front door. They go different directions. And as far as we know, neither of them were even struck with a round, right? No evidence found that either robber had been shot, police reports say. And so that's where we're at. Now, no arrests have been made uh, of anybody. Good guys are bad. So as far as we know, everyone's uh, actions are presumed legal at this point. But it does say the investigation is is still open. So I got some some crazy th- like I'm just seeing this play out in my head, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, like, I don't know. I just I guess I wonder sometimes if our community is so cons- is so wired up that the second we see BG with gun, boom, we just draw and start shooting. And that seems to be, in my, in, in, from my reading of this, what this this uh, grocery store employee did is just I see gun, and guy in ski mask. So without any additional, you know, investigation as to what's going on, I will immediately draw my gun and just start shooting at them. Now, if that's not the case, because I think most of us would agree that that that's not ideal, that we shouldn't do that. Okay, so let's say that's not what happened. Then what you're suggesting to me then is that our grocery store employee looked ascertained that we have guys with ski masks and guns, uh, observed them receive a register, the cash register drawer full of cash, and then in that moment decided this would be a good time to start shooting at them. Mm-hmm. And if, in that case, I just call that bad judgment. Like generally, wouldn't you inherently believe that these guys have the cash? They're probably going to leave. Shouldn't we give them five, ten seconds to see what their their next intentions are before we start shooting? Anyway, a little bit of soapbox there, but I yeah. I just was blown away by this one. There's a lot of things that's hard, you know, hard to really understand about the situation. Obviously, we don't have. I mean, there's there's pretty pretty interesting detail in the story, but there's obviously not everything in the story. But uh, 
you know, this is what we end up with when we don't have coordination between individuals that might respond to an incident. Uh, so maybe the store owner was thinking one thing and one tactic, but obviously he is not in sync with what the other do with what the employees think in the 70, 70 year old employee. Um, so what I see out of this one is there's, this is a grocery store. Apparently it must be a kind of a smaller store, I suppose. Uh, a couple of things I noticed. Number one, I thought it was really good. If you read the story, you know, it says how they, they told these guys, you know, un, un, you know, uncover your faces. Basically they came into the store with the hoodies tucked in tight around their face and scarves covering their mouth and nose and stuff. So only their eyes are visible. And immediately the store owner is like, you know, guys, you know, take it off, take it off, you know, uh, you know, uncover your faces, that sort of thing, telling them to, you know, either get out or you need to not look like somebody that's about to rob me sort of thing. Right. But that just sort of moves the, you know, obviously they came there to rob the, rob the place. So it was going to happen regardless. Uh, from that point, it moves straight to the robbery. Cause obviously they'll, you know, the, the, the two robbers are like, uh, well, he's, they're telling us to remove our masks and stuff. Well, okay. Yep. All right. Here's our guns. Give us, give us your money sort of thing. Um, the, the other thing that I was really thinking about is that you have store employee with gun that engages from the get, you know, he's the first one that engages, right? Which one thing that worked out probably pretty well is that the robbers were probably more focused on the owner who had just given them money. So the tactic itself is not a terrible tactic that, that the employee engages necessarily, right? As far as like their attention was probably a little bit off of him. So he had the opportunity to do it. So he does. And then he engages and that creates the opportunity for the store owner to also then engage, right? You know, like they, regardless of how it all played out and things maybe not being ideal, uh, it, it, it all worked out because I think they, these two guys probably surprised the heck out of these two young robbers. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, if, you know, if this was you, if, or if you were in a similar situation, we got to be really mindful of backstop, you know, what's beyond or in the direction of our targets. And there's other people in the store. It mentioned there was several children between the ages of four and 14 in the store. So obviously there's other people in this store and when you have two individuals engaging bad guys from two different directions, it really complicates the backstop issue. And so, yeah, you get it's just a, a good story, I think, to kind of put that in the in the memory banks and go, okay, yeah, I got to be thinking about this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, moving along, we got to start wrapping it up here. Uh, security guard shoots man in park. In bar parking lot after put in choke hold. This happened in San Antonio, Texas. Not going to make a, a big deal out of this story. Basically, there was a disturbance in a bar. The patron was asked to leave. I mean, this one started out just like our first justified story today, where you have security guards involved and an unruly or fighting bar patron, and they're asked to leave. Well, they're not happy about that. So in this case, though, rather than grabbing an AK-47, uh, this individual starts fighting with, with the security guard. And unfortunately for that security guard, this individual has a friend. And that friend jumps in behind him and gets the security guard in a chokehold. Uh, that's a very, very bad, vulnerable position to be in. So, and, and it's a dangerous one. So the security guard draws his weapon and shoots the bad guy in the belly the guy that's got him in the chokehold. Um, that, of course, uh, apparently works. 
and uh, security guard lives to tell the tale, and a uh, bad guy goes to the hospital, and his friend goes to the jail. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of a you know quick and dirty story there, but uh, and, and like I said, some really interesting correlation between the, the other one that could have turned into a mass shooting but didn't. Uh, these both developed uh, very similarly, and I'm sure we have listeners listening to the podcast that that work as security guards or and maybe even work in the capacity of. Uh, being a security guard at some sort of nightclub or bar. So guys, be really sharp. And, uh, you know, yeah, like the, the, things can get out of hand very quickly before you realize it. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, two, two and one, you know, it's crazy for this episode, right? Yeah. Moving on. Uh, sheriff says man dead in Monroe County home invasion. This was in Mississippi. Uh, this story also too, it was just kind of, Kind of, there's some interesting things to this story, right? I don't know if you want to talk about this one. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, near 1 a.m. and a man kicks in a door in a house. The residents wake up after hearing growling noises. So maybe their dog is growling, or maybe this guy is just foaming at the mouth. I don't know. Uh, but they, the male homeowner, finds the BG named Culver in the kitchen. Now, the homeowner, quote, warned the BG with a shotgun and ordered him to get on the floor. The BG apparently doesn't want to get shot by a shotgun, so he complies. He gets down on the floor in the kitchen, right? Then, according to the news article, quote, the homeowner tells the BG that law enforcement is, is, was responding. And then Culver, the, the BG, gets off the ground and charged at the homeowner. The homeowner then shot the BG with the gun. So, guy dies before deputies even arrive. So this is interesting because you essentially have a situation where it's like where you know the homeowner is holding the the bad guy at gunpoint and makes him get down on the ground. He complies, but that for whatever reason, this guy says, "You know what? I am not going to lay here on the ground for cops to show up." And he gets up and charges the gun. He he runs right at it. And so the good news here, I think, a, a lot of potential good things, but certainly the homeowner was committed. He was ready to do what had to be done, and in this case, he had to do it. He had to shoot. Yeah. I, I like this story, and I made sure to include it in today's episode because of this incident. You know, th- this this part of it where you know the homeowner he's got a shotgun and he's got the bad guy on the floor. It's really interesting to me that that bad guy chooses to get up and charge the homeowner, knowing that homeowner's got a shotgun. It makes me wonder or ask the question. Why? You know, like, was there something that this bad guy, you know, that, that, that this home intruder saw in the homeowner that he thought maybe he wasn't actually committed to pulling the trigger? Or was he just really committed to trying not to get caught? Like, the way this story is written, the homeowner, you know, the, the intruder complies with the homeowner's request, you know, to get on the floor. The homeowner then tells him that law enforcement's already been notified and is on their way. And it's almost like at that point, the intruder is like, oh, crap. Like, law enforcement's already on the way. Like, I'm hosed. I'm getting caught. And so he makes the decision to to charge the homeowner. And uh, that was a really, really poor decision because, yeah, he, he ain't with us today. So crazy story. That, that one, I just found that really interesting. And, you know, we so often we talk, right, about uh, making sure that the situation is safe. For whether it's whether you're considering administering any sort of aid to a, a bad guy that you just shot, or whether it's like for whatever reason, you, it makes sense, I guess, to you to kind of hold this person 
you know, at bay uh, until law enforcement arrives. You know, we've talked on the podcast, Jacob, and, and, and hopefully listeners kind of have a sense of where you and I stand on this. But I understand the desire for somebody, you know, for us to want a, the bad guy, the intruder, the assaulter, or whatever, whoever they are to get caught. And like certainly in many contact texts, it, it's it's acceptable for you to sort of arrest them or keep them, you know, to hold them, uh, you know, in that position until law enforcement responds. But at the same time, like if that intruder will leave and get out of the premises, that usually is better and safer for you. In this case, you know, that's just something that that it kind of comes up is the way I see it is mm-hmm. would it have been better that the homeowner said, get out, get out, get out instead of get on the floor. You know, that homeowner would no longer be living with the idea or the feeling that, you know, the understanding that he just took alive, even if it was justified. Right. So anyway, just really heavy, deep things to consider there. Fox59.com reports two arrested in connection with murder on Indy's Southeast side. So Indian Indianapolis, which will be there later this year for the NRA uh, annual meetings and exhibits. Uh, two men have been arrested for the alleged involvement in the killing of a man that took place on Thursday on Indy's southeast side. Uh, basically, the story goes, this this one's pretty interesting. The, these two guys, actually three guys, broke into this home during the day, burglarized the home, took a bunch of stuff. And apparently they were returning to steal more items. And, and the homeowner kind of suspected that they would be returning for some reason, right? Like, <laughs> it's it's not like a, like, I, mean, I don't know. I don't think that the average homeowner, when robbed, would say, I bet they're going to be back later today. <laughs> I, like, I so, agree. Like, like something fishy, like why, why, what led the homeowner to believe, like expect <laughs> that they were coming back? I don't know. Yeah. So why, why, why is Jacob talking about that? Well, because according to this news story, the homeowner arranged for someone to be in the house to catch the burglars. <laughs> so, the person in the house <laughs> shot and killed one of the suspects as he was trying to get in. The other two got away. They have since been arrested. Uh, yeah, like I read, I read that the same way, Jacob. I'm like, okay, so, all right, dudes rob house or you know steal stuff from house. Homeowner goes, I think they're coming back, so I'm going to make sure somebody's here, and obviously make sure that they're armed. I mean, clearly, and uh, they, in fact, do come back, and one of them gets shot. You know, it made me wonder if if the homeowner had... Um, if, if, he, if he had something very valuable that was, you know, that they... They had seen that they knew would was valuable, um, but maybe it was something they couldn't take with them earlier. Maybe because of its size, its weight, maybe the fact that it was secured somehow, and they knew they would need other tools to uh, to get it. And maybe you know something that was just so tempting that the homeowner really su- strongly suspected that there was a good chance they would come back with more tools to be able to get that item. I don't know. Like that's the only thing I could come up with, unless there's more to the story. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, we just might be missing something. But, uh, you know, and and there was one thing I wanted to point out. It says here in the article, Indiana Code allows a homeowner to use deadly force if they reasonably reasonably believe it is necessary to stop a person from trespassing on their property. Is this true or is this a reporter getting the facts a little bit wrong? So, Indiana listeners, let us know, okay? Okay. 
or and or Jacob or I we should go and research that because that's a very unusual thing to allow deadly force to stop trespassing. Yeah, well, I you know I, I hate to say it, but I don't think we have the most intelligent people from Indiana. You know, part of the story because here's the quote from our criminal law attorney in Indianapolis. This is great. Being able to protect ourselves and protect ourselves in our own home is one of the principles of our Constitution protections. So I think that his point was totally valid and legitimate, but if that's the, that's not exactly a cohesive thought in terms of the grammar. <laughs> Sorry, well, once again, attorney Kevin Potts. <laughs> once again, but I've also seen it where and, – and you should know this too – where reporters just really badly misquote things. Maybe, maybe we just are, in which case Kevin Potts should go sue Fox the fifty nine, but for making him look like he's like he's a, a hillbilly like a from 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 Alabama in the in the yeah. hills. Yeah, I'm with you there. Well, anyway, that that's all of our justified stories for this week. Um, crazy, you know, crazy week. Lots of stories. Let me uh, give you a little bit of a preview. Of what's coming up um, tomorrow? By the way, we're interviewing at uh, is it eleven o'clock, Jacob, or or twelve? Mm. Crap. Uh, I need to give the time. I got to check the calendar. I thought it was 11, but you know maybe it was a different time. I believe it's at 11 a.m. Uh, mountain time. And I'm trying to confirm. Hold on. Calendar is loading. Loading. 1.30 p.m. Eastern. So that would be 11.30 a.m. Okay. Close, close to 11. <laughs> so 11.30 a.m. Mountain time. We are interviewing Maj Ture of Black Guns Matters. And uh, it should be a really fascinating interview. Anybody that's uh, seen Maj in other interviews uh, or is familiar with with who he is and what he stands for, he's he's a very very interesting dude. I mean, he has a lot of really uh, interesting ideas, good ideas. I appreciate the work Maj is doing uh, nationwide to uh, bring to light a lot of different things on uh, surrounding the topics of guns, gun safety, especially. I know Maj is, is a huge advocate of gun safety. Uh, and he's working really hard to educate, especially inner city residents, uh, particularly those you know minorities, uh, particularly those that maybe traditionally don't get access to uh, perhaps the greatest training or information as it surrounds guns. Uh, so we'll ha- we're looking forward to having a really great conversation with Maj Ture of Black Guns Matter tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. Mountain Time. That'd be 1.30 p.m. or not Pacific, Eastern Time. And so that'll be that'll be a good time. And then uh, next week will be a SHOT Show. Um, I don't know that we'll bring to you a normal news episode because of the nature of the show. But what we'll, we'll, we'll strive to do is bring to you uh, an episode or an interview that we record while we're there. And uh, so, yeah, we'll we'll look forward to being there, and hopefully you'll be following us on YouTube and on Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere for the latest and greatest in SHOT Show coverage. Lots of really cool, exciting new products, as well as some interesting and unique and sometimes shake-your-hand type products as well at SHOT. So we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to bringing that coverage to you. So with that, time to wrap it up here. Uh, Jacob, any last words? Nope. I didn't think so. (laughs) So with that, uh, we will bid you all adieu. Wish you all, uh, you know, good, safe time out there. Uh, Get some training, you know, work, you know, take some time, practice, do all that good stuff. But make sure that the training you do do and the practice that you do do, uh, do do. (laughs) Train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. 
reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.